The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're in a series uh, studying a practical, personal matter about examining ourselves, taking spiritual inventory. We did four weeks, four weeks, a spiritual inventory, asking the question, are you saved? And we were doing that examining ourselves. Why are we doing that? Because scripture, God calls us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. And so we did that together for four weeks. And some of you came in, you had bruises and bumps all over your body. Some of you just felt like you went through the gauntlet of many of the challenging truths in God's word. And you made it through, you, sur- you survived. You should be celebrating today if you are at church today and you made it through that spiritual inventory. Uh, it's time to rejoice. And hopefully if you're a believer, you are more confident in your election, in your salvation as a result of doing that spiritual inventory. And that's cause to celebrate and thank God. Thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord, as I walk through it. But also thank you to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that confirms that subjectively, experientially, personally, deep within our hearts. Where the Spirit of God confirms you belong to me, you are a child of God. And deep within the inner recesses of our heart, we can cry out to God, literally calling him Abba, Father, that's Romans 8. There is no other religion in the world that has that promise because they aren't true. But Christianity is. So thank you, Holy Spirit. So now we're going to make a transition to examining to see whether you're saved to now do some self-evaluation on to see if you are growing. So it was, are you saved? Now Now that you're sure that you're a Christian in light of how the Bible defines it, Now we're going to look at, are you growing as a Christian? So that's the, basically the title of the sermon today. There are handouts, separate handouts for that. If you didn't get those, I think there's some in the back. And that's the handout of the day. It's got a lot of key verses on there written out for you so we can move quickly along and also so that you can use it later for further Bible study or if you want to remember some of those key verses. So that's the topic of the day. Are you growing as a Christian? Other different ways to phrase that or ask that question is, are you maturing as a spiritual Christian? Are you spiritually maturing in the faith? Are you making progress or are you making headway in the act of progressive sanctification? means the same thing. Another way to say it is, are you growing in holiness? Those are all synonyms. Growing spiritually, growing in holiness, Being sanctified. They're all synonymous concepts in the New Testament. Because the Bible is clear. If you are a Christian, if you're truly born again, if you're truly regenerate, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, that when you got saved or born again, you became a new creature. And that's a new spiritual creature. A new supernatural person by the work of God. So anyone that knows Christ is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Your old sinful lifestyle and the habits and patterns that go with that. And all things have become new. There's a new day and a new direction and the Spirit of God literally lives in you and he will continue to live in you until you die and go to heaven or until Jesus comes again and the Spirit of God is in you and he is intent on one thing and that is being our comforter but also helping us grow. The Spirit of God who lives in us doesn't just want us to grow, it's also his job Not only that, the Spirit of God is, he is the eternal God. 
And he doesn't just want us to go grow, expect us to grow, and it's not just his job to make sure that we do grow. He actually ensures that we will grow. That's the amazing truth. The Spirit of God, if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God is going to guarantee that you grow in the faith. Even if you resist and dig your nails in and your heels, as we all do as sinners kicking and screaming, the Holy Spirit, you can't, uh, he's more powerful than you are and I am. It's like when I'm babysitting my year and a half year old grandson and he tries to muscle up on me and get his way. I just, I take him down and say, you can't, I'm bigger than you are. Give it up. Uncle, wave the white flag. And I just hold him until he does. And I say, see, I told you so. So that's an incredible thing we're going to learn about the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, he actually lives in you. And he is going to guarantee that you grow and are sanctified in this life. Whether you like it or not. That's actually Hebrews 12. That's the Living McManus translation. Whether you like it or not. Because pain might be involved. Suffering might be involved. And God, one of the ways that God does cause us to grow spiritually is he can use suffering in this life. Notice I didn't say he causes suffering. Because every time you have suffering in your life, it isn't a direct cause of God doing it to you. He's not intent on picking on you or me all the time. But I guarantee every time there is an incident of suffering, it's suffering that you could have brought on yourself for whatever reason. It could be suffering that results from just living in a fallen world. It could be suffering that you incurred from somebody else. It could be suffering from Satan himself, heard circumstances of life, the realities of life. Or maybe there is suffering that God does allow doesn't matter where the suffering is coming from. God will always use that suffering to refine his people, to sanctify his saints, to help us grow in the spiritual maturity. So we'll, we'll talk about that. So uh, are you growing? So this is spiritual inventory. So we're evaluating ourselves in this area. Am I growing? How am I doing? Uh, Pastor Cliff said, the Holy Spirit guarantees that I am growing. So I've been Saved for five years, so there should be some measure of progress in the five years that I've been saved. A lot of times it's hard to assess that. How do you evaluate where there has been growth? Because we are so myopic, we are so used to ourselves. If there is growth, sometimes we don't see it. If there's a reversion, we don't see that either, a compromise. We're blind many times. So it is a challenge. So we need the perspective of others. We need objective lens by which to evaluate our life. That's the beauty of God's word. It's a microscope. It is a telescope. It's binoculars. It's a mirror. Uh, it's a magnifying glass. It's so many things to help us have an objective evaluation of how we are doing. How are we progressing? Are we growing and where do we need to grow more? Where are we weak in areas where we aren't growing? So we're going to cover all of that over the next couple of weeks. Today is just introduction. So I wanted to introduce this topic of spiritual maturity, spiritual growth. Are you growing? We need to evaluate ourselves accordingly. You could also call it uh, an introduction to holiness, being holy, becoming holy, or sanctification, progressive sanctification. Like I said, those are all synonymous phrases. Hopefully you've heard at least one of those concepts. Uh, a traditional way that some theologians or pastors explain being saved, salvation is the big umbrella term. In the Bible, in the New Testament, soteria or sozo, salvation, big umbrella. And then under the, and there are many ways that we are saved. We are saved spiritually by being born again. That happens at a definitive one time or one 
point in time, a moment in time, like when you got born again. For me, it was when I was age 19. For you, it was at a definitive time. You got saved. That's often called justification. The moment you got saved, the moment you became born again. That's under the umbrella of salvation, justification. Then, So there's justification. And then they like to say, then there's sanctification. That's an element of salvation. That's the process of being saved. The pro- Wait, Pastor Cliff, did you just say the process of being saved? That doesn't sound very Reformed or Calvinist. Yeah, it's not. Uh, the process of being saved, sanctification, that's some of the terminology used, and it means that after God saves you and you're born again, that he grows you. That's what it means. It's like you're, you're born as a baby one time definitively. You have all of your body parts as a baby on day one, but then from that point on, you grow as a human. You grow. That's the sanctification process. They call it progressive sanctification. So under salvation, you have justification, you have sanctification, the process of growing after you get saved, And then the final main element or category of salvation is glorification. That's future salvation. That's Romans chapter 8. So, am I saved? Yes. Well, depends on how you answer the question. I have been saved spiritually. I am being saved presently. Sanctification conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And I will be saved completely and definitively. So, in the future, in glory, Romans 8. So those are the three main categories under salvation. Uh, I am not content with that oversimplistic approach of there's justification, uh, sanctification, and glorification. And the problem is is because the word sanctification means much more than just the process of growing in Christ. And we'll see that as we do our introduction today. It's a much more flexible and broad term. But before we jump into my handout here and look at these key verses on sanctification or holiness or growing and maturing as a Christian. I am Pastor Cliff, and therefore I have an introductory diagnostic quiz. Are you ready? Put your seatbelt on. Here it is. It's ten questions. It's true and false. Don't try to write down the answers, but do write down, I mean the questions, but write down the answers. So don't try to write out the answers. Sorry. Don't try to write out the questions, but you can write down the answers if you want to. One through fifteen. And it's just T for true, F for false. And we'll see, this is called, I made it up, it's called the sanctification quiz. Oh, I've had these, this one. You haven't had this one before because I made it up yesterday. I've given a sanctification quiz before, like in seminary and yo pro class. It's a new one. I just invented it yesterday. 1 through 15. Let's see how you do on the sanctification quiz. True or false? Uh, number one, you, and I'm assuming that you call yourself a Christian. I'm assuming you are a believer, okay? So I'm not trying to trick you here. Just take it straight forward. Number one. You will never be sinless in this life. True or false? Don't answer out loud. Number one, you as a Christian, you will never be sinless in this life. Number two, progressive sanctification means your nature is changing. Progressive sanctification means that your nature, your human nature, is changing, developing, growing. Number three, all true or false, all Christians are vulnerable to all sins. All Christians are vulnerable, susceptible, could commit any sin. Number four, true or false, the current fallen physical body that you have and reside in today, your body, the current fallen physical body is evil. True or false? Your body is evil. True or false? Number five, Jesus was tempted by sin when he was on earth. True or false? Jesus was tempted by sin when he was on earth. Number six, Jesus could have sinned 
when he was on earth, but he never did. Two parts to that, true or false. Jesus could have sinned when he was on earth, but he never did. Number seven, every Christian is a saint right now. Every living Christian is a saint. Number eight, God created sin. Number nine, every Christian is holy. Number 10, over time, Christians become better people in this life. As time goes by, Christians become better people in this life. Number 11, every Christian is a sinner. Number 12, God sometimes tempts people to sin. Number 12, God sometimes tempts people to sin. 13, every Christian is growing spiritually. Oh, I already answered that one for you. 14, all our temptations come from Satan. 15, every Christian has the indwelling spirit. 15, every Christian has the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm going to go over the answers real quick. And I don't want you raising your hand complaining because you don't like the answer that the teacher gave. I made the quiz. It's my quiz, and it's my answer sheet. If you want to come talk about it later, that's great. Let's have that dialogue. I don't have time now. But I think these are substantiated. Clear, these are no-brainers in the Bible. This is basic biblical theology. For two, I got 2,000 years of church history behind me here, so, and, a, and 10 systematic theologies in my office. Here we go. Uh, number one, you will never be sinless in this life. That is true, although some denominations like the Nazarene and Wesleyan denominations say that, yes, you can attain sinlessness in this life. James Dobson used to say publicly, I've gone 13 years without sinning. He said that on many occasions. Uh, number two, progressive sanctification means our nature is changing. That's false. Your nature is not changing. I'm talking about your ontological, metaphysical nature as a human being. It is not changing. Something is changing if you're a Christian. Something's growing, but it's not your nature. Number three, uh, all Christians are vulnerable to all sins. Uh, that is true. And if you think that you aren't susceptible to any given sin, Paul waves his finger in our face from Scripture and says, take heed lest you fall. Number four, the current fallen physical body that I have is evil. The answer there is false. Uh, you may have been stumped by the word fallen. Do I have a fallen body? Yes, I do. Did Jesus live in a fallen body? Yes, he did. It got tired. It died. It was subjected to death. He had no sin. He had no sin in his body. He bypassed the curse of sin through the virgin birth. And then, but he had a fallen body like ours. And then he died and was given a resurrection, perfect resurrection body. And our body, a resurrection body, will be like his. So there is a distinction between that which is fallen and that which is evil. Like the earth is fallen, it's cursed, it grows weeds, it's not evil. It's not sinful. The earth isn't sinful. So there's a distinction there. Uh, the body is not evil. That's Platonism, that's Hinduism. We don't believe that. Uh, number five, Jesus was tempted by sin when he was on earth. Uh, that's Hebrews. Yes, that's true. Number six, Jesus could have sinned. No, he could not. He was God. God cannot sin. That's clear in Scripture. Even though every temptation thrown his way was a legitimate temptation, but as God, he would resist every time, and he did. Number seven, every Christian is a saint. A saint just simply means holy one, and that's true. God considers you a saint uh, if you're a Christian. You are a saint, so just put saint and then your name after that. I am Saint Clifford, just in case you didn't know me. Thank you. Why are you laughing? 
I'll say it again. I am St. Clifford, in case you didn't know that. I don't have to die and then be canonized 50 years after my death by some church. I am a saint now. Uh, number 10, over time Christians become better people in this life. Sorry, number 8, God created sin. Absolutely not. Uh, God tempts no one. God can't have anything to do with sin. Did God allow sin? Well, of course he did. Read Job chapter 1 and 2. Did he create sin? No. Did he ordain all things that come to pass? Ephesians 1.11? Yes. Did he, uh, did he create sin? No. Well, how do you resolve that? I don't. I will ask God in heaven, and if he so feels the prerogative to let that be known to creatures, he will. Number nine, every Christian is holy. So this is similar to number seven. Uh, number nine, that is true. Every Christian is holy. We'll talk more about that. You mean I'm sinless? No, that is not what I said. Every Christian is holy, depending upon what the word holy means in a given context. Number 10, over time, Christians become better people in this life. I hate to break the news to you. I was taught this as a young new Christian for I don't know how many years, almost 10 years, uh, that I was told by the definition used regarding progressive sanctification that with time I was going to become a better person. And I remember literally being in seminary, thinking and looking at my seminary professors and thinking, man, and I was in my 20s, I can't wait till I'm 39 or 40 when I don't sin anymore. And that's what I was taught, pretty much, or that's what I believe, that's what I was aspiring to, because it's literally being taught that I am becoming a better person with time. You can count on it. It's guaranteed. And that was the interpretation given to that verse and many other verses, that over time we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The Bible does say that, and that statement is true. The question is, how do you understand it? What's the true meaning to that phrase? So I would say... Uh, no, Christians are not becoming better people with time. So I, it, I think the light went on in my mid-30s. I think when my wife told me, you know what, you're not becoming a better person. <laughs> I've known you for uh, 18 years. I'm thinking, wow. And then I said, you know what, That's the I feel the same way about you. <laughs> and then I started thinking about every Christian I know. I go to the Shepherds Conference every three years. This guy that I saw back, he's no better than he was three years ago, this pastor. I don't think any of us are becoming better people. So if that's your theology about progressive sanctification, I hate to ruin your day and spoil your lunch, uh, but the promise of the Bible is not you're, you're not going to become a better person in this life. That is, that's, again, that's clear in Scripture. The older Paul got in the faith, the more pessimistic and realistic he got about himself as he assessed himself. Early on when he first got saved, you can see this in his epistles, his earliest epistles, he said, um, well, I'm, I'm one of the apostles. Really, he said, well, okay, I'm the least of the apostles. But I'm an apostle. Pretty awesome. There's a little bit of humility there. I'm least of the apostles. And then a few years goes by, and then Paul says, well, actually, I'm, I'm the least of the saints. So he put himself in an entirely different category with time. I'm the least of the apostles, I'm the least of the saints. And then at the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1, he said, I am the most wicked sinner that has ever lived in the history of earth. After living with himself as a believer and apostle for 30 years. So that was Paul's inventory and evaluation of himself. So he knew, no, my, my nature, my me that is me, the I that is me, it ain't changing. It ain't getting better. Something is changing. Something is progressing. Something is growing. Something's being sanctified. I'm becoming holy in a certain way, but that ain't it. I am not becoming a better person. I remember I, I teach pneumatology at the seminary. 
That's the theology of the Holy Spirit. So we delve into sanctification as an element of pneumatology, the work of the Holy Spirit. So I have the seminary students, these guys are pastors, read certain books. And I had them read a little book on sanctification. That's what it was called. And all throughout this little book, uh, the author kept saying that basically our nature's being changed. We're becoming better. Our nature's becoming more and more like Jesus' nature. Uh, you were saved as a 63-watt light bulb. And hopefully by the time you're 52, you'll be a 92-watt light bulb. And maybe you can make it to be in a 100-watt light bulb before you die. And that's possible because your nature is changing all throughout the book. Metaphysically, you are changing. And I'm thinking, no. That is not what the Bible is saying. Because the practical question, if that were true, is are you becoming a better person then, overall? So I challenged my seminary students with that, and they all got, they got to a point where they agreed with me, yeah, I guess I'm not, now that they think about it, I'm not really becoming a better person. Am I growing as a Christian? Yes, in certain ways. But I'm not becoming a better person. So uh, we invited this author to my class, and we did Zoom Q&A for an hour, and all the students asked him all kinds of questions, and he fielded all those based on his book. And then it was my turn at the very end. And I asked him, I said, my first question out of the gate was, so in light of what you said in your book, uh, are you a better person today than you were five years ago? And without blinking an eye, without hesitation, he said, absolutely. And then all of the students in my class who had been trained properly and accordingly, they were all made an audible gasp. Because <gasps> they knew, oh man, don't say that. Don't say that with Professor McManus. Wow. So we talked about that. I said, Really? How long have you been married, fella? 11 years? So you're trying to tell me your wife thinks you're a better person today than when you first got married? And then, so we walked it through, and then he got to a point where he actually agreed. Well, I guess you're right. I guess I'm not becoming a better person changing metaphysically or ontologically. So he ended up agreeing with me. Uh, and, and he agreed that the terminology that he's using could confuse people, and so he said he might change and edit the book. Uh, the, fast forward a couple of weeks. So this guy's a little a whippersnapper in his 30s. Theologian, wrote a book, pastor down in Southern California. Two weeks goes by, we read another book by a seasoned theologian, uh, one of my favorite theologians, godly man, Richard Gaffron, uh, Westminster Seminary. He's probably 87 years old. And so we did a Q&A with Richard, who has written many books on the Holy Spirit and sanctification. All the students asked him all kinds of questions. He's brilliant. He's a godly man. He's humble. He's 87 He's as sharp as a tack. And I got to ask questions at the end because that's how it always goes. And so I said, hey, Richard, let me ask you a question. You gave your testimony. You got saved when you were five years old. And now you're 87. Are you a better person today than when you first got saved? And he just started laughing because he knew that's pathetic. No, absolutely not. I am not a better person today. And if my wife were still alive in here, she'd be the first one to attest to tell you, no. Over those 52 years of marriage, I never became a better person. I grew, I matured spiritually, but I did not become a better person. So uh, I think that's one of the most important things we need to That question specifically helps us define what are we really talking about when we're speaking of progressive sanctification and holiness and that we're actually growing. And is there something that actually changes in my life? There is something that changes. I go to the Shepherds Conference. I see this guy. I haven't seen this guy in 10 years. I went to seminary with him. He's a pastor. We have time together. And I conclude, wow, he has changed, and he has changed for the better. It's noticeable. It's obvious he has changed. He's grown spiritually, but it's not in his metaphysical nature. Something else has changed. The question is we've got to put our finger on what is it that changes. So don't let the terminology 
confuse you. Number 11, is that where we were? Every Christian is a sinner, that's true. 12, God sometimes tempts people to sin, that is false. God never tempts anybody to sin. 13, every Christian is growing spiritually, it's guaranteed. Hebrews 12 and other places, that's true. 14, all our temptations come from Satan, that is false. As a matter of fact, probably very few uh, temptations actually come from Satan. We don't need Satan to sin, right? We only need one person, that's yourself. Who's your worst enemy? You are. Write it down. Always remember that. You are. You start complaining and whining about another believer or somebody else is your enemy. No, you're your worst enemy. I am my worst enemy. We'll see that from Paul next week in Romans 7. He was his worst enemy. 15. Every Christian has the indwelling spirit. That is true. That's an awesome truth. So not only are you your worst enemy, the Holy Spirit knows that. He's more powerful than you, and he lives in you all the time. Therein lies our road to victory and comfort. With that, here we go. Let's do this overview on what the Bible has to say about sanctification and holiness before we do some practical application. Uh, so you can go to your handout there, just write, write it down. Uh, I've got a few points here that I'd like to go over. Fifteen. Fifteen points, Pastor Cliff, in less than 30 minutes? Yeah, absolutely. You doubters? Oh, ye of little faith? Let's do it. What does the Bible have to say about sanctification and holiness? Number one, just the definition of sanctification, uh, it starts in the Old Testament. And sanctification, it just means to be set apart, that's all. To set something apart. To be deliberate, selectively grab it and take it away from the group of other things and set it apart. So you could literally say that sanctification means to be set apart in a special way for a special purpose. To be set apart in a special way for a special purpose. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, sanctification being set apart usually refers to a good thing with positive nuances initiated by God. On occasion, uh, the word being set apart, sanctification can have a negative connotation. We'll see that in a couple of the verses here. But for the most part, it's to be set apart for a special purpose. Sanctification, just a few key verses. The first time... The word for set apart, sanctification, to be made holy is used in your Bible. In the Hebrews, Genesis 2, 3, which says, God blessed the seventh day. This is the week of creation. God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified the day. There it is. Or you could say, God blessed the seventh day, and he set it apart from the other six days. Or you could say, as some translations do, and God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. Those are all legitimate translations. That's Genesis 2, 3. Exodus 3, 4, God, through an angel, whether it was the pre-incarnate Christ or a holy angel, but literally God's presence was there, came down, because God is spirit, God doesn't have a body, but God's a person, so God can communicate and God can talk, and God's talking through this bush to Moses in the wilderness, and God tells Moses, come on over here to the bush, but... Take your sandals off because the place where you are standing, the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's the same Hebrew word. The place on which you are standing is sanctified ground. Why was the ground sanctified, holy, set apart? Because God's presence literally was there at that time. When God's presence left, it was no longer sacred and holy. And human beings, they want to get 
mystical about things and because it was sacred and holy while Moses was there, when the Spirit of God was there, and then the Spirit of God leaves, then we want to build a fence and a cathedral over the top of it and say, yeah, this spot is still holy. No, it's not. God left a long time ago. Remember when Peter did that at the transfiguration? When Jesus was transformed with two Old Testament saints that appeared there in glory? That was a holy, sanctified moment, and Peter wanted to capture it forever and seal it up and put it in a bottle and God, can we, Jesus, can we stay here forever and build tabernacles and cage this baby in? No. Because as soon as Jesus was no longer transfigured and Moses and Elijah left, that mountain was no longer sacred, holy, set apart, sanctified. Uh, Exodus 13, 2, God says, Sanctify, set apart, make holy to me every firstborn human male. Set it apart for me. And every firstborn animal. Why? It belongs to me. So even animals can be made sacred, holy, sanctified. It just means set apart for a special purpose in a special way. For God, it belongs to me. Exodus 15, 17, uh, the place of thy dwelling, the sanctuary, the holy place. So the tent or the tabernacle where God had his uh, the Ten Commandments, and his presence resided. It was called the holy place, the sanctified place, the consecrated place, same word. It was set apart for God's presence. That was holy. Deuteronomy 23, 17, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. It's interesting. English translates this same word for set apart as cult prostitute, set apart. So that's being set apart in a negative way, set apart for prostitution. So as I was saying that the word for Set apart, sanctification, holy, consecrate is not always used in a good way. This is negatively. You shouldn't set apart women for the practice of prostitution. Set apart in a special way for a special purpose. The special purpose there is sinful behavior. Number 1638, the fire pans that the priests are holy, sanctified, set apart. Isaiah 52.1, Jerusalem is the holy city, the set-apart city, even though it had all kinds, by that time, in the days of Jeremiah, it had a history of centuries of wicked compromise, sexual immorality, idolatry, it was under the curse of God, and yet it's still being called the holy city, the city that's set apart, set apart by God historically, set apart uh, during the days of Jesus as he ministered in Jerusalem where the temple was, and also set apart in the future because God is going to return through the Messiah to the city of Jerusalem. It is set apart in a special way for a special purpose. And then the ultimate, where this same word is used three times in a row, emphatically Isaiah 6.3, referring to Yahweh, God's personal name, where God said himself, holy, 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 sanctified, 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 is Yahweh. That is who I am. I am set apart like no other. All sanctification issues from me, the holy God. So this word for holy sanctification set apart is used 175 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Most frequently translated as consecrate, and then 31 times as sanctify, 27 times as holy, and then also translated as purify or cleansing on a few other times as well. So that's just the word sanctification used and laid down and a precedent is created in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament authors pick up that usage because the New Testament authors were Jewish and they read a Jewish Hebrew Bible. That's how they were trained. And they use sanctification synonymously. They just use it in the Greek language instead of the Hebrew. Number two, what is the Hebrew word for sanctification? Teach a little Hebrew today. It's kadosh. 
There it is, Q-A-D-O-S-H, Kadosh. Kadosh, Kadosh, uh, Gesundheit, God bless you. Kadosh, that's what it sounds like. Can be translated as, variously, sanctify, holy, consecrate, dedicate, set apart, purify, cleanse. Kadosh. Number three, God is the one who sanctifies and he himself is sanctified. God is the one who sanctifies. Leviticus 22, 32, and you shall not profane my holy or sanctified name, but I will be sanctified or made holy among the sons of Israel. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. He is the one who sanctifies. He is the one who is sanctified. And you know what? God is holy. He is sanctified. And yet we are called as his people to sanctify him. He already is sanctified. And yet we're called to sanctify him. That's Matthew 6. When you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed are you. Sanctified are you. Set apart are you. I need to set you apart. God, you are holy other from anybody else. You are holy, holy, holy. That's what that means in the Lord's Prayer. Holy, holy, holy. Hallowed be thy name. Sanctified, set apart. The awesome God. Think Isaiah 6.3 from now on. Anytime you think of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Holy is the Lord. There is none like him. Hebrews 2.11. The one who sanctifies, that is God, and those who are sanctified. So God is the one who sanctifies, who sets apart for a special purpose. Number four, the New Testament word for sanctification. You've learned some Hebrew already, and that was, you said? Good. One person over here said kadosh. Let's try that again. The Hebrew word is? Kadosh. Good. Sanctify, well, in the New Testament word is hagiosmos, or hagios, the shorter version. Number four, the New Testament word for sanctification is hagiosmos, comes from hagios, with an H, hagios. Uh, and there are ten times the word sanctification occurs with this Greek word in your New Testament. I put all the verse references down if you want to do a Bible study and see how it's used in all different ten contexts. Romans 6.19 says, present your members, your body parts as slaves to righteousness or obedience, which will result in sanctification. It will result in being set apart. It'll result in being different. It'll, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll result in you being different clearly from unbelievers who aren't concerned about living righteously. A distinction is being made through sanctification. God wants it to be clear. He wants it to be black and white between a believer and an unbeliever. And the process of sanctification helps that. Number five, the New Testament word for holy, which is related to and a cognate of the word sanctification, is hagios. So number four was hagiosmos. Number five, the word holy, like Holy Spirit, that occurs dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. What is that word? The Holy Spirit. Spirit is pneuma or pneuma, and then holy is hagios, the hagios spirit. Your King James Bible, if you have... King James Bible it says Holy Ghost. You can take a black ink permanent marker and scratch out the word ghost because that's not the Greek word. It's spirit. Holy Spirit. The Hagias Spirit. That exact same word for Holy Spirit is also translated as saint in reference to God's people. So it's the Holy Spirit and yet Paul calls you as a Christian a saint. What does that mean? You're a holy one. You were set apart by God. You were set apart by Jesus the moment you believed in the gospel. And you were set apart in a special way by believing through the salvation of Christ for a special purpose, to serve him, to grow, to work out uh, the works that God gave you before the foundation of the world, says Ephesians 2.10, for his glory. 
hagios, saint, holy. Number six, sanctification refers to four different things. That's why that threefold paradigm of, well, here's salvation. It's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Wow. Well, not really. That's too superficial. That's shallow. Because the word sanctification means several different things in the New Testament, depending upon the context. At least four different ways to understand the word sanctification. That's number six. Sanctification can refer to, first of all, a past action when God saved you. So it's literally synonymous with justification, redemption, salvation, born again. 1 Corinthians 6 would be an example. God sanctified you when you believed. He saved you. So sanctification can refer to a past action. It can refer to a present status. Right now, I am, God can, he looks down from heaven and he considers me sanctified right now. That is my status. Based on that past action of sanctifying me, I now am in the status before him legally as sanctified, as clean, as pure. So it refers to a past action, a present status. Now the third one is an ongoing process. Sanctification is referred to in an ongoing process. That's progressive sanctification. I was sanctified, I currently am sanctified, and I am presently being sanctified. Those are all three truisms. Number four, sanctification is also a purified state in the future that is final, and it is perfection, and it is in glory, and it lasts forever. It's a future state. So I have been sanctified in the past. My current status is I am sanctified before God as he looks down on me. I am also in the process of being sanctified more by more as I'm growing as a Christian. And then also in the future, it's going to finalize, guaranteed, that I will be in a final state of perfect and pure sanctification without sin in a glorified body forever. So it really is fourfold, sanctification, as it's used in the New Testament. Uh, Number eight, sanctification can refer to our present status before God. Now I'm just giving you a verse for each one of those that I just talked about, uh, meaning that we stand before God currently. uh, Our sanctification can refer to our present status. Wait, did I skip one? Sorry. Uh, Oh, well, that's okay. Number eight, sanctification can refer to our present status before God, uh, meaning we are pleasing to him, acceptable to him. Can you imagine the holy God of the universe looking down on you if you're a Christian and he's actually pleased with you? That's your, that's your legal status. Pleasing. We can please God. You know all those filthy rags that Isaiah talks about, your works? That doesn't apply to the Christian. Christians should never say that about them. My works are just filthy rags before God. No, they're not. Not if you're a Christian. They're good works, Ephesians 2.10. You are pleasing before God. Number nine, sanctification can refer to an ongoing process of obedience. Many times the word sanctification is just synonymous with being obedient in a moment of time. Are you sanctified? Really what I'm asking is, are you being obedient right now? Were you obedient in that decision and that temptation you were confronted with? If you obey, then you are acting in a moment of sanctification. And you could blow it in five minutes. So sanctification can refer to an ongoing process of obedience. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and following where he says God's will for you is to be sanctified, and then he gives several commands to be obedient, and he even uses the word obedient. God wants you to be sanctified. Well, what does that mean? Well, he wants you to obey this and obey this and refrain from that sin. So what is sanctification? It's obedience, and it's moment by moment, decision by decision. Are you sanctified right now, Pastor Cliff? That answer could be different than it was last week at the same time, or in a week from now. 
because it's connected so closely to obedience. Number 10, sanctification can refer to future final glory, Ephesians 5, 27. I already referred to that, but I'm just giving you a Bible verse there. If you're a Christian, it's guaranteed you will be completely, totally, thoroughly, perfectly glorified for all time. Number 11, Christians are holy and at the same time are commanded to be holy. So you are holy, you're a saint. And at the same time, God says, be holy. You are holy, but keep being holy. That could be confusing. What do you mean, God? Colossians 1.22, you are God's chosen ones. You are God's elect ones. See, there's your security. God chose you for salvation. He saved you. He chose you before in eternity past. He chose you before you were born. And then you were born in this life and you had to hear the gospel and God brought you to repentance and then he brought you to a point of salvation. He sanctified you and he saved you and he's continuing to sanctify and grow you now that you're saved because you were chosen in eternity past. It all goes together. You are chosen, God's holy, chosen ones, holy and loved. Holy is the word for sanctified. You are Sanctified. And then 1 Peter 1.15 says, As the one who called you is sanctified or holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. There it is. So you are holy, but yet you got to keep pursuing holiness. And sometimes you're not holy. Twelve. To be holy is to be obedient. That would be 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. They're synonymous. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be sanctified? To fulfill the will of God. Well, it means to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It means to obey. So when I'm, not obe- when I'm being disobedient, I'm not being holy. When I am obeying, I'm being holy. That's practical application. So there's a, a status, and then there's practical application. Two different realities. Number 13, it is God, God empowers the Christian to be holy by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit really is the key to the fact that we can be holy. The idea that a pathetic, sinful person such as we are can be holy is absurd and ridiculous. We can't. We can't do it on our own. It's against our nature. We prefer sin. We love sin. Sin is in our very core being, our very nature. And yet the idea that we can actually be holy, be set apart in a way that pleases a perfect God, That's a supernatural truth, but it becomes a supernatural reality because actually God gives you the Holy Spirit to live in you. If you think about it, to be holy in that statement that God says, I am holy, therefore be holy as I am holy. That's an impossible human standard. Can any human being ever be as holy as God? Absolutely not. Yet that is the expectation, that is the command, that's what we'll be held accountable to. What would we need to be as holy as God? We would need to have the very nature of God. Do we have the nature of God? No, we don't. Yes, we do. What? That's the answer. We don't have the nature of God in and of ourselves. Paul said in Galatians and also Romans 7, 14 through 25. Paul says, I have a fallen, sinful, wicked, evil human nature that is my very being and I am disgusted with myself. And that's truly who he was as an apostle and as a Christian. And at the same time, in Galatians, he says, Nevertheless, it is not I who live, but Christ lives in me. So we literally have the nature of God living in us. Christ lives in me. It's the supernatural born-again I. It's a part of my true identity. Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. Wow, what does that mean? That means Christ lives in you. That's 2 Corinthians 13. Christ, Jesus, he says, Jesus lives in you. 
How does he do that? It is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you and has become a part of your identity. So do we have the nature of God within us somehow? The answer is no and yes. We are partakers of the divine nature only because the Spirit of God lives in us and it is the very Spirit of Christ and therein lies our supernatural power and ability to resist sin and fulfill obedience. Otherwise, we couldn't do it without God's help. We couldn't do it on our own. God empowers the Christian to grow in obedience. 14, we work with the Holy Spirit being holy. In God's sovereignty, we had the assigned reading for the day. Elder Tim read Philippians 2. That was assigned about six weeks ago. I didn't even know what I was preaching on. And he actually read two key verses for today. Those were the sanctification verses. In Philippians 2, we work with the Spirit at being holy. You know, this trips up people all the time. We've talked about this with respect to salvation. Do we need to do anything with respect to salvation? People hate it when I ask that question. The answer is yes, we need to believe, right? We need to repent. We don't just sit back passively and get zapped by God. Zoot, you're saved, whether you like it or not. Whether you know it or not. No, we need to believe. What must I do to be saved? Acts chapter 2, right? What must I do to be saved? Well, believe and be ba- repent and be baptized. Acts 16.31, Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? And Paul said, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, do nothing and get zapped. Because you're a six-point Calvinist. He didn't say that. Believe. So, of course, God initiates and plans the work of salvation in eternity past, but it's applied in our lifetime, and we are involved by hearing the gospel, understanding it, being convicted, feeling guilt, repenting of sin, believing in Christ. And then the transaction is finalized, the work of God. Same with sanctification. Sanctification is just not all God doing his thing and we have nothing to do with it. That would be a form of mysticism, pietism, pacifism. Let go and let God. That was the phrase a hundred years ago. Let go and let God. Just do, You don't need to do anything. Yeah, you do. All those imperatives, all those commands in all of Paul's epistles and in Peter's epistles, all the, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got, you got to be obedient, you got to do stuff. In light of these truths about God. So the imperatives are built on the indicatives, if that means anything to you. But 14, we work with the Holy Spirit of being holy. We work with, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit in the process of becoming sanctified. That is clear in Philippians 2. Here's how Paul words it through the Holy Spirit. So then, my beloved, so then, fellow Christians, this is a truth. Just as you have always obeyed as Christians... Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here it is. Work out your own salvation. Key phrase. Wow. He didn't say work to get saved. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you already, you already got saved by God's grace and mercy. It was apart from works. It was by grace through faith. You were born again. And now that you are saved, little baby Christian, now you've got to grow up. Grow with respect to the salvation you already possess. Work out your salvation. We have to do something. It's arduous work. It takes discipline, initiative, commitment, deliberation. 
Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You need to take it seriously. So do I. For it is God. Here it is. Well, what's the key to doing that? Well, it's God who is at work in you. You're not on your own. How is God working in me? He's working in me through the Holy Spirit that lives in me, as well as through the living Word of God, Scripture. This is the sanctifying agent as well. The Word of God. You can't grow in holiness apart from the Bible. You can't. This is objective truth that God uses to sanctify us and make us holy as primarily what he does is he changes our thinking about reality. Jesus said that in John 17. Lord, Father, sanctify your people. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. That's how you become sanctified and holy. It's through truth. You can't grow apart from scripture. You need to have the Bible like an ongoing perpetual IV in your soul every single day. Drip, 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 drip. I need to be getting God's perspective all the time because my thinking always deviates to self, to sin, to the world, to the wrong thing. And it's a corrective continually, the word of God, about everything. This is synergy. When we work with the spirit of God in cooperation, it's called synergism. I know some people think that's a dirty word. And I'm not allowed to say bad words in church, but I'll say it again. Synergism. It means to work together with. It's actually a New Testament word. There are times where synergism is a good thing. In Corinthians, Paul said he was a co-laborer with God. That's synergism. I work together with God. I collaborate with God. I partner with God in this supernatural divine enterprise and adventure. What a great privilege. Synergism to work together because there is a monergism website. And they make you feel like, don't ever use the word synergism. Well, no, monergism is true. God alone does things at certain times, but at the, there are other times where God wants us to partner with each other and with his will and with the Holy Spirit. And in sanctification, there needs to be synergism. We are working in tandem with the Spirit of God, the truth of the Bible, as we pursue holiness. Number 15, spiritual maturity. This is key. Uh, when we, we rewrote the statement of faith, uh, what, seven, eight years ago at our church on the paragraph on sanctification. I don't know if any of you realize that. Maybe you forgot. Um, and we rewrote it to be more in line with Scripture. And as I was explaining to the elders, asking them questions like, are you becoming a better person around the table? And then I asked the question, but the Bible does say we're growing. So we are growing and changing somehow. So what's growing in light of the words of holiness and sanctification in the New Testament? And boom, one of our elders shouted out and said, it's in our thinking, in our knowledge. Ding, 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 ding. It's correct. So anytime, for the most part, anytime you see the word growing with respect to becoming more and more holy and Christ-like, it is growing in your knowledge, your spiritual understanding. It's not just amassing data about the Bible. It's not gaining Bible facts. It's understanding, here's the key word, it's understanding the key implications to what that Bible verse is saying. When the light goes on, oh, that's what it means. I had Ephesians 5.25 memorized for years. Husbands, love your wives. So there was the academic intellectual knowledge, wrote memorization, it's there. But then I've been married 13 years, 23 years, and then all of a sudden a light goes on. Oh, here's the application of what... God in Christ really means at a deeper level of loving my wife, which is not easy. It takes supernatural power and ability. Oh, and then the light goes on. The implication of Scripture becomes very personal and real at the deepest 
level, that's how you grow in knowledge. So the seminary uh, pastor at Grace Community Church that I hadn't seen in 10 years, and I walked away thinking, man, that guy has grown and matured, and it's so obvious. How did he grow? He grew in his understanding, his assessment of reality, of things, of himself, and the way he lives life, decision by decision, moment by moment. That's true growth. That's true sanctification. And it came only through a better understanding and application of the Bible, the truth of the Word of God, with the help of the Holy Spirit, as he established one pattern of obedient behavior after another, developing that spiritual muscle. That's how you grow. That's maturity. So spiritual maturity is a growing aptitude at exercising obedience decision by decision. That's why you could ask somebody who's been a Christian for 50 years. Uh, are you holy today? And they could say, uh, well, I think so. I hope so. Yeah, I'm trying to be. Or some mentors that I've had, even seminary professors, married for 52 years, and then we find out you know, within five years he was cheating on his wife after being married for 50 years. And that doesn't mean he wasn't trying to pursue holiness. He's a Christian. Pursuing it. Having success at times. And then, oop. Fell. Tripped up. Succumbed to temptation. That, that's why I said it can happen to any one of us. And it, so in that moment, after 53 years of marriage, of having a good marriage, being faithful, being holy to the best of your ability, then you fall into a secret relationship of adultery and compromise, and yet he's still a Christian. Is he holy? No, he's not. Not at this moment. Was he holy in the past? Yes, at times. Could he repent and overcome that and be restored and continue on the path of holiness? Yes. That's the grace of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.